Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, media talk about the economy as though it were an abstraction, somehow clinically removed from daily life instead of being ingrained and entwined in every minute of it. So white supremacy and economic policy are completely different stories for the press, but not for the people. Our guest's recent work names a simple, obvious way development incentives exacerbate racialized inequality by transferring wealth from the public to companies led by white male executives. Arlene Martinez is Deputy Executive Director and Communications Director at Good Jobs First and author of A Trenchant New Report. Also on the show, Counterspin listeners are well aware of the gutting of state and local journalism connected to the corporate takeover of newspapers and their sell-off to venture, or as some would say, vulture capitalists. Florine Nahara Oresti is California campaign organizer for the advocacy group Free Press Action. We'll talk to her about better and worse ways to meet local news media needs. That's coming up. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. A State Department spokesperson issued a press statement on June 18th lamenting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's updated West Bank settlement policy, citing such unilateral actions as a hindrance to peace and de-escalation. Despite official U.S. condemnation, the New York Times seems reluctant to hold Israel accountable for the unprecedented settler brazenness that has come to characterize the Netanyahu administration. As Laura Noor Walton lays out for FAIR.org, the Times meaningfully excludes key apartheid terminology in describing the power dynamics underpinning the recent violence in the West Bank. Times reporter Isabel Kirshner opts for murky descriptors like conflict, tension, and clash, all of which conceal the power asymmetry between the Israeli military apparatus and the Palestinian people. And in related news, the U.S. has decided to send cluster munitions to Ukraine, a weapon whose acceptability seems to be about who's using it. NBC Nightly News falsely reported that the U.S. has not used cluster bombs since 1991. In fact, the U.S. has employed the weapons as recently as 2009 and has even more recently sold them to allied countries that have dropped them. Cluster bombs are munitions that include numerous small explosive devices that land separately. The bomblets frequently explode long after they land with devastating effects on civilians. In recent reports, NBC correspondent Matt Bradley has said that they're banned in 110 countries, though not by Russia or the U.S. Still, the U.S. hasn't used them since the first Gulf War over 30 years ago. Well, that claim was inaccurate. 
since the 1991 Gulf War, the U.S. has dropped cluster bombs on Bosnia, Serbia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Moreover, the U.S. has refused to join the 123 countries that have signed the Convention on Cluster Munitions that bans the use and production and transfer or stockpiling of these weapons. So the U.S. military was buying cluster bombs until 27. U.S. arms makers were building them for foreign sale as late as 2016. And according to a 2015 Human Rights Watch report, credible evidence indicated that the Saudi-led coalition used U.S.-made and supplied cluster munitions in airstrikes against Houthi forces in Yemen. So if the U.S. wants to consider the availability and viability of cluster weapons, well, maybe we ought to start at home. You're listening to Counterspin. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the Media Watch Group, based in New York. Under a provision of the Inflation Reduction Act, some factories making batteries for electric vehicles will each receive more than a billion dollars per year from the U.S. government. That's along with some $13 billion in state and local economic development incentives that factories making electronic vehicles and batteries are slated to receive. But as Good Jobs First calls out in their new report on the subject called Power Outrage, there are no requirements for the jobs promised and considered key to this deal to be permanent jobs or even that they provide market-based wages or benefits. We have a press corps that considers it due diligence to critically examine every dime the government offers to struggling people. But huge economic subsidies to profitable corporations are a no-comment given. No matter how not needy the grantee, and no matter how opaque the process there's just little sense of any need to follow up on a government or, you know, taxpayer gift to those who we're told are the doers, the makers, the job creators. This crucial but underexamined economic phenomenon is Good Jobs First topic all the time. And the new report, the first in a series, takes an angle on the impact of subsidies that you pretty much never hear. Arlene Martinez is Deputy Executive Director and Communications Director at Good Jobs First and author of the recent report, How Economic Development Subsidies Transfer Public Wealth to White Men. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Arlene Martinez. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we see subsidies or what you call mega deals going to folks like Amazon, companies that don't need a lift, you know, um, they don't need uh, community support and, and they don't give back necessarily when they get it. Um, the racial unfairness is part and parcel of that. And yet I feel like every day we learn how irreducible white supremacy is, how it doesn't stir into anything else and just disappear. So, what did you find, and why do you think it matters? 
Yeah, Good Jobs First has a subsidy tracker which looks at economic development subsidies that have gone to companies. And we have a special category called mega deals, as you mentioned. And those mega deals are the biggest of those deals, anything that's $50 million or above. So I took a look at the top 50 of those. So we're talking all billion dollar deals and up, very extravagant packages that go to some of the biggest well-known companies in the world. And what we saw is that most of those companies were run by white men. And in cases when they weren't white men, they tended to be born outside of the United States. And then there were just two women who were also white. So when we talk a lot about this transfer of wealth, and really what you're doing is taking a community's very precious, limited resources, right? And directing it towards some of the biggest, most profitable companies in the world, which isn't what subsidies were ever meant to do in the first place. They were supposed to incentivize development that wouldn't have otherwise taken place. And that's just not what we're seeing here. So what you're really having is you're exacerbating this racial wealth gap through the use of subsidies. We thought we should be explicit about who the winners were. Right. Well, you hear like, well, okay, these are big companies and they provide a lot of jobs and a lot of those jobs might go to people of color or to women. So, you know, we can't help that they're big. What about that? That's one of the very popular myths, we would say. We hear quite a bit, well, these are big companies, they produce a lot of jobs. But the truth is that's not what actual research shows, which is that these companies aren't producing any type of special extra amount of jobs. And in fact, a lot of times they're just simply taking jobs from smaller companies. I think Amazon is a great example of this. Their online presence and their warehouse workers mean that a lot of the retail jobs that used to exist have been cannibalized. So it's really just been a transfer of jobs in a lot of cases. And some of those times they've gone from good industries to really poorly paid warehouse workers where black and brown workers tend to be holding the poorest paid, most dangerous jobs. Well, I remember talking with Dorothy Brown about tax policy and just saying, you know, there's a way that broadly race can be related to economic outcomes, but somehow when we're talking about policymaking, it's not factored in. And she was saying that people would say, Race doesn't affect tax policy because we don't have any data that connects that, you know. So what you don't study is invisible to you, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And similarly, when the case of subsidies, if you don't think the impacts of these big subsidies are race related or have impact that is meaningful in terms of race, well, then I guess you don't see it. But that doesn't mean those impacts don't exist. That's right. And, you know, Dorothy Brown, we had a conversation. One of the points that I've heard her make is ProPublica, which has done a series of really damning, amazing reporting around some of the tax returns of some of the wealthiest people in the world and just how much they're avoiding paying taxes. And one of the points she makes is, look at look at the list. They're all white people. And yet ProPublica doesn't take that extra step to say, by the way, the people who are avoiding paying taxes, who aren't paying what everyone else is paying, are the richest people in the world who are white. I think she does a good job of doing that. Calling attention to that impact, which if you don't see it, you don't have to see it, but there it is. Yeah, and I was a reporter before I joined Good Jobs First, and I remember one of the stories I was writing about was there was, of course, a budget 
shortfall, as there often are in these local communities that we cover. I was a local reporter. And the first thing on the chopping block was really a boxing gym and a library and a community center in a very heavily Latino neighborhood in the city. And it was, of course, which is disproportionately used by that city's Latino population. And it wasn't these other things that were being cut, you know, police and fire were being fully funded. Mm-hmm. Um, those are both professions that tend to have, again, high populations of, of white men who occupy those positions and are being paid some of the highest salaries in a community. So, yes, I think there is a need and communities benefit from really that conversation becoming a lot more explicit than it's been. Absolutely. Well, you know, part of, I guess, what galls me about news media's sort of soft, blurry attention to subsidies is, you know, and I said it to Greg Leroy last year, we don't look to corporate news media first for critical examinations of corporate capitalism, but they do present themselves as watchdogs of the public interest and especially of public spending. We hear about the cost to taxpayers a lot. And so if that's true, I feel like minimally the secrecy around public subsidies to companies like Amazon ought to be compelling stuff. And yet somehow they don't get broken open often. And the impact and the follow up on communities just doesn't seem to be the kind of catnip to reporters that you would think it would be. Yeah. And it's amazing how the scrutiny that we give every spending dollar that seems to come out of uh, city budget is not at all applied in the same way to companies and company behaviors and company press releases. Their word is taken at face value and as if, as if somehow it's more legitimate when we're there questioning every nickel and dime that's being coming out of a community. I remember covering a museum that was trying to get, you know, like the county museum was looking to get some money and there was city council meeting after city council after city council meeting about whether this museum should get a million dollars over five years or whatever the case was. Whereas other communities, and we write about these a lot, they will approve a $300 million subsidy behind closed doors with no one knowing about it. And it's touted as a good thing for the community. So I think there increasingly is more scrutiny on things like these subsidies and people really are starting to question more whether this is really the best way that communities should be spending that money. But there is something interesting about the way that corporations and companies are reported on with such a trust that isn't given to to government, for example. Well, and I just want to say, finally, Good Jobs First is very much about involving everyone in the process. And you reference trackers, you know, subsidy trackers that you have. They're accessible for folks who are reporters or not reporters. Uh, You try to make data or databases available to folks who want to kind of follow the money. Yes, we have databases that we've purposely made fully accessible. We don't even ask for your email and you can look up a company. So if a company comes to your community and says we need some money, to expand our operations or to even open, you can look to see where else has this company gotten money and what did those, what did it deliver for the money that it's gotten in other places? Or you can look at a company in our violation tracker and say, what's its record on corporate conduct? Because um, we have all types of misconduct records in there to say, is this the type of, if the company has a long track record, 
of cheating workers or harming the environment or cheating consumers. You can say, is this the kind of company that this city should be investing in? So, yes, we do try to make these databases very accessible and easy to use. Um, We're trying to do the research for you, for journalists. Right. Well, if journalists won't use it, then the public can use it and work around the press corps. I mean, the point is to get it done, right? That's right. That's right. And we are, we're thrilled that every day we get some kind of outreach, whether it's a grassroots community group, an individual who said, I saw this, I can't believe what I'm seeing. So they go to their city council, then they can question what's going on or whoever their official might be. And so always thrilled when we see that. Um, I would just you know add that, made this point earlier, but communities have a certain amount of money and the money that's being spent is precious. And there are things that actually do lift up communities. And those are excellent public schools and they're communities with parks that take care of their natural resources and safe communities. And when communities invest in those types of things, people want to live in those kinds of communities. And the companies want to be where those people are, where those workers are. So the real wins that we see that communities do is when they invest in those things that truly lift up people from the bottom up, rather than showering a corporation with a billion dollars and hoping somebody at the very bottom of that funnel can use it to lift themselves to a better place. All right, then. We've been speaking with Arlene Martinez. She's Deputy Executive Director and Communications Director at Good Jobs First, online at goodjobsfirst.org. Arlene Martinez, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. Headlines suggest the California Journalism Preservation Act is a pretty good thing. Help democracy by helping newspapers. And what stories go unreported when a local newspaper fades evoke concern with the very real loss of local news and of journalism jobs and the societal harms that come with that. And making Google and Meta pay for news they profit from. Your local newspaper does the work, big tech reaps the ad dollars. Meta threatens to pull news posts from Facebook, Instagram if California bill becomes law. And California lawmakers advance journalism bill resist big tech bullying. Well, they all suggest that the legislation found the right enemies. So why do advocates like our guest think that it's good news, really, that the act in its current form has been shelved for the moment? Florine Nahara Oresti is California campaign organizer for the advocacy group Free Press Action. She joins us now by phone from the Bay Area. Welcome to Counterspin, Florine Nahara Oresti. Thank you, Janine. Happy to be here. Well, let me just ask you, what did the California Journalism Preservation Act, also known as Assembly Bill or AB 886, what did it say it would do? And why is it that at least in its current form, you don't think it would get us there and might even take us somewhere worse? So the California Journalism Preservation Act is a bill that was designed to create a mechanism that would allow news outlets to extract payments from big tech companies, including search engines that feature content linking to their news sites. 
And so there was a lot of excitement around this bill for that reason. Unfortunately, due to the mechanism of the bill as a link tax, the intended outcome was unlikely to be achieved. And there is no guarantee that any of the money funneled through this bill would go to supporting high-quality local content and journalists. Um, This bill was modeled in many respects after the Federal Journalism Competition Preservation Act, which was recently reintroduced in Congress after failing to pass in the last session. The CJPA, the California version of the bill, differs from the proposed federal bill in that it creates an even more explicit link tax where payment is based directly on the number of online impressions of links to new sites on social networks and search engines. And because of this current approach that rewards clicks, it creates more of an incentive for the production of clickbait and low-quality journalism, Mm -hmm. in addition to altering the way the open Internet works. So the bill is drafted fails to consider the news and information needs of Californians. And instead of uplifting the production of civic information as a public good, it creates a giveaway to the bill's most vocal proponents, which include large corporate media outlets, conglomerates, and these are the folks who have actually stopped investing in local news and are responsible for a majority of the mass layoffs in local newsrooms. So when you say link tax, I think that's something that that might be a new phrase to people. That really was going to be if a search engine or if Facebook links to a local news story, they were going to be taxed on that? I mean, is is it as direct as it sounds? Yeah, that's right. So the bill as it was written would essentially tax the number of impressions or the amount of times a link is shown. Um, on social media sites and search engines. Now, this doesn't mean that the content of the publisher's website is available on the social media or search engine site, but simply that it is linked to it, perhaps with a short snippet or a headline. Well, and then what turned up in all of the, pretty much all of the articles that I read was with this tax, um, and we can talk about in a second, you know, who is going to be considered a journalistic outlet that can even get in this process. But the big selling point as far as news coverage was the proceeds from this tax, 70 percent of them were going to be spent on news journalists and maintaining or enhancing the production and distribution of news or information. That on its face sounds good and 70 percent sounds like a good number, but that wasn't clear how that was going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly like you said. It seems uh, like a very attractive point of the bill. But unfortunately, this provision that at first seems to hold publishers accountable for hiring more journalists or increasing salaries, salaries to the journalists that they already employ, actually, you know, through normal, through regular accounting practices, could easily result in um, an extremely difficult way to track where these funds are spent. Um, Policy initiatives such as these rarely have this desired impact because money is fungible and it's extremely difficult to ensure that these funds are spent according to the purpose or intent of this legislation. Well, I think language is so formative here, like bigger picture, including with the federal legislation, there's a difference between let's shore up our existing newspapers and let's meet the information needs of the community. 
You know, like there obviously there can be overlap or confluence there, but those are really two different goals, aren't they? And they entail different processes. Exactly. That's exactly what we're trying to get at. What we want to uplift in our communities and what Californians really need is community-centered, truly local and responsive journalism, not just propping up an industry that, you know, the ad-supported market is already not supporting. Um, So what we want to see is the increase of this public good, and that's where policy intervention should come in. We often hear, and particularly with, as you know, the very imperfect work of legislative politics, you know, we often hear not to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Sometimes something starts out not great, but you work with it and it gets better. But we also know that inadequate or or wrongly directed reform efforts can make it harder than for better ones to advance. You know, people sort of feel like, well, we already tried that, or they just get issue fatigue. So it seems important to say with regard to this, that this is not just saying no to this. It's the fact that we actually have better alternatives, right? Absolutely. And fortunately in our work, uh, partnering and working with local stakeholders and community newsrooms across the state, like El Timpano, um, the coalition of local newsrooms known as Lion Publishers, and other individuals, including local journalists, we know that there are much better alternatives to consider. Our work in New Jersey and elsewhere has shown us that lawmakers can pass this really innovative legislation that can actually lead to more informed communities more reporters on the ground, and sustainable, independent, and community-rooted local news. Well, and I I always think, you know, every time I talk about fighting privatization or making something public, making institutions more public or more accountable, it's not just an outcome. It's a process. And I know that this is part of what you've been trying to say, is that it's not like we're going to make something for the community and then give it to them. You know, um, people have to be involved in this earliest stages of, of creating something so that it is accountable. Yeah. And we are in a position where lawmakers can really listen to the concerns of local news advocates and communities that have actually suffered due to the absence of this quality coverage Um, So we really hope to work with both our communities and lawmakers in this next phase of the legislative process to make sure that these folks are heard and that, you know, this results in well-designed policy that actually achieves the goals we're setting out to achieve. We've been speaking with Florine Najara-Oresti, California campaign organizer for Free Press Action. You can track their work online at freepress.net. Florine Najara-Oresti, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the National Media Watch Group FAIR. It's engineered by Riley Bear. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.